everyone. Welcome back to Stories of Us's. I'm Gabby. And I'm Daniel. Hey, guys. Thank you guys so much for coming back to another episode. Uh, today, we have a really fun topic. Uh, one of my favorite ca- characters from one of my favorite books. And Daniel's newest favorite character from one of his newest favorite books. <laughs> well, I still have to read the book, though. But <laughs> Gabby told me a lot about it and I read a little bit about it up front. Okay. Uh, I hope you guys are ready. Um, this week we are talking about Joe March, uh, Josephine March from Louisa May Alcott's Little Women. And today's sources are littlewomen.fandom.com, uh, pbs.org, and a paper by Shardai Smith at Seton Hall University called Dismantling Gender Roles and Redefining Womanhood in Louisa May Alcott's Little Women. Are you guys ready? So let's start from the beginning. Um, this is called uh, Let's start from the beginning. Um, Little Women is a book written by Louisa May Alcott. A lot of this story is autobiographical. Uh, and Joe is the protagonist, even though we learn a lot about her other sisters. Um, Joe represents the author in many ways and in many ways so do other characters represent different people in the author's life Mm -hmm. and some facts about the book there were more than 10 million copies sold worldwide 50 languages it's the baseline or the, the start for a lot of movies series that came out plays so it's really popular. Musical. Musicals, yeah. And the fun fact about the book is it only took the author approximately 10 weeks to write the whole book. And I think the book is quite long though, right? It is. Originally, it came out in two parts. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was able to write the whole thing. I mean, right now you can buy it. One whole thing, one whole book in Barnes and Nobles or wherever you get your books from. Um, and eight of Louisa May Alcott's books have never not been printed. Like they've always been printed since yeah. she published them. So that's really cool. She's an amazing author. And I think that hearing about the story, you guys will be able to feel the same way. Little Women is a coming-of-age story that takes place in the mid-19th century in the New England landscape. There we meet the March family, four sisters, Meg, Joe, Josephine, Beth, and Amy. The story begins with the four girls talking about their woes, about their financial situation for that Christmas. After much back and forth, the girls turn away from getting their own presents and work together to surprise their mother, whom they lovingly call Marmy. In return, the girls wake up to a surprise of their own. Each girl gets their own book copy of The Pilgrim's Progress under their pillow. While the girls are ready to begin their breakfast, Marmy asks them to sacrifice one more time for a needy family, the Hummels. Their selfless act does not go unnoticed by one of their wealthier neighbors, Mr. Lawrence. He, seeing their sacrifice, sends them a feast to enjoy and celebrate their selflessness. And that's quite a good thing what they did. I mean, you have to put it into context, right? Like 19th century. This was before there were like phones or any type of electricity. So what those people gave away, like food, was literally one of the main things that you could have and possess and give it away rather yeah. than having the tools to to build things or to have or do agriculture right right and i think that i mean there was some electricity then it wasn't as developed as it is now um but i think that very very few people and only very very wealthy people could have access to what we have today is very common, very bare minimum. Yeah, it is. So it was basically right the the time of the first industrial revolution, right? So 
Right. So this is all during the Civil War. Um, and during the book, we learn more about Josephine March, who we know as Joe. Joe is our protagonist, and she is, as I said, an autobiographical figure for the author herself. She is all kinds of different, especially when it comes to her sisters. She is, to quote her, and for lack of better words, the man of the family, while her father serves as a union chaplain amid the Civil War. She is tall, boyish, a true tomboy who whistles while walking with both hands in her pocket. She's a girl rebelling against the forced ideal of womanhood in her society for that time. Meg, her older sister, is her counterpart in every way. She is the embodiment of the idea of femininity of the 1800s. Meg always comments on how Joe is rude and unladylike in comparison, and this is their point of tension throughout the book. Opposite Joe, we have Theodore Lawrence, who we know in the books as Lori, and who Joe endearingly calls Teddy. Lori comes from a very wealthy family and is Joe's best friend. They are one and the same and always together in their own wild adventures. Even Mr. Lawrence, Lori's grandfather and a wealthy man, takes a liking to Joe in her wild ways. Joe spends much of her youth writing plays to entertain her friends and family, and eventually we learn that her life goal is to become a writer. Again, much like her inventor and creator, Louisa May Alcott. Which I think is so fun, um, because even then, when we think of the quote-unquote ideal woman, we don't necessarily picture an author or someone who wants to become a writer. Even though we have authors like Jane Austen, Emily Dickinson, Mary Shelley, uh, Louisa May Alcott herself... I think it's really cool that even in the book, she puts herself as, I want to become a writer. And I think for that time period, if you were a wealthy family, the job of a woman would have been described as like, I don't know, you have like tea time, you meet with people. You yeah, go it was very social. You, you like the women stopped like participating in the labor a lot like during that period of time because you had like the first industrial revolution right and you had a, a lot of slaves that were taking care of the jobs that previously had and been not done not by, just by like women. slaves but like also indentured servants and immigrants i mean yeah. like the triangle factory that caught on fire was around you know this time turn of the century um for the 1800s to the 1900s i mean there's so much that you know you had to be very very impoverished or socially on the lower spectrum um to be in labor as a woman um and it was very forced upon you because you had to survive and it, here in this book we see that you know the marches in the way you know marmy is described she comes or she came from a family of wealth and she was married thinking that that wealth would continue and it didn't and the and um the girls especially the older ones knew that they used to have more money they used to be more wealthy and then that just sort of dwindled but who they were never never did um in that sense of knowing who they were so one day The family receives a telegram saying that Mr. March is sick in the hospital in Washington, D.C. Marmy goes to tend to him, and Joe sells her hair to help finance the trip. Chaos ensues in Marmy's wake for the girls neglect their chores again, meaning they were supposed to keep their deal of going to visit and help care of the Hummels. But Beth asks Joe and Meg to remember their chores, going to them, And they keep giving Beth excuses and ultimately neglect their duty. So only Beth goes to visit the Hummels and they're a German family that they helped during Christmas who they gave their breakfast to. So they were elderly people that needed help? No, they're not the elderly household? people. Um, after one of her visits, she contracts scarlet fever from the Hummel baby. So it's, there's a family, like a mom, a couple oh, kids okay. and a baby. 
And after being in contact with the baby, Beth gets scarlet fever as well, much like the author's real-life sister Lizzie, and teeters on the brink of death until Marmy returns. Beth fortunately does recover, though not completely, and Mr. John Brooke, Laurie's tutor, falls in love with Meg, much to Joe's dismay. Mr. Brooke and Meg are engaged by the end of part one, and Meg, she's not that old. She's like 19 at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, it's crazy because, you know, if you guys don't know, Daniel is not American. He is German. And, you know, he's asked me a couple of times, like, why my friends get married so young. And it's not the same in Germany, is it? At least not from the area where... Or in the area where I'm from, right? Like metropolitan area, Frankfurt. So very central, mm-hmm. very cosmopolitan. So I don't know how it is if you go like more south, like where you have more people that are more Catholic and, you know, more conservative. If they marry earlier, I don't know. I mean, I know a couple of people from there. They don't necessarily but even, necessarily like, Even then, like people in yeah. Germany, they don't think of marriage Mm. um because like even here you know i have friends who are you know my age and they already have a couple of kids and are already married or they've been married since they were 18 19 20 um and to me that's kind of normal because i grew up around that and i am i did grow up in the south so that's like even more so natural and normal for me to see um but you know moving away for a bit kind of let kind of open my eyes to how different um it is in different countries and different societies um but this is very much the same here like meg being married at 19 or engaged um not a lot has changed in that respect when it comes to you know that like purity culture ideal and also that you know conservative ideal of you know marrying off rather than working or becoming independent yeah and that's like not a thing in germany like it's i don't i don't know it's not like something that people want want to do and it's also like not like an ideal you're striving for and if i'm not mistaken also the father returned from the uh, war right and from his sickness yeah so this is part two and this part begins three years later after the end part of part one at this point meg and john are married and starting their own family with their newborn twins demi and daisy and meg really struggles to find a balance of being a mother and a wife since john is now feeling neglected by meg which i mean is t- not really fair a fair use of the word <laughs> you know meg had twins and is in charge of caring for the house and raising children so to me saying that you feel neglected when your wife is literally taking care of the house and taking care of the kids on her own if you want to not feel neglected, you can help by just fathering your children. And I think that's what she wanted, right? But on the other hand, I mean, at least coming from his perspective, it's just like, okay, this is what I had before, like irrespective of on how like the the boundary conditions around it changed. He will receive different attention and time from his wife now. Absolutely. So you can be like, okay, I, I feel neg- neglected, but it's not because his wife doesn't want to interact with him. It's just because like she has to do like so many other things. I agree. And that's what Mar- Marmy tells her, like, we'll include him in like rearing the children, which I feel like my mind is a given. Like you both had kids, you both rear your children. But I guess at that time it was like, I need to get special permission from the mother or show special interest who knows Mm, also i don't know like how it really was but i think people back then had 
pretty long working days. So I guess like men that went to work were working longer. So it was not as easy as it might seem nowadays to to interact with your children. Doesn't I'm not saying that it was not possible for him, but I'm just like saying there was probably less time during the week. And then I don't know if they had to work weekends or not. Yeah, I don't know. I think that even with hard hours, like working hard, does not count for you fathering your children like it's absolutely not instead not. of yeah. oh no absolutely not i'm just trying to bring it into context right because this has been like 270 years ago yeah so time has been very different back then and sometimes we still have this ideal in our head like working like it's 40, not 270 years ago though it's like a hundred something years ago oh it's 170 years ago yes i'm sorry <laughs> Yeah, it's okay. So at this time, Laurie graduates from college, and having put in the effort to do well in his last year with Joe's prompting, Joe gets left by her aunt with her closing, with her choosing Amy, a more ladylike March sister, to go on a European tour with her aunt. Beth's health is weak due to complications from scarlet fever, and her spirits are down. While trying to uncover the reason for Beth's sadness, Joe realizes that Lori has fallen in love. At first, she believes he's fallen in love with Beth, but soon she senses it's with herself. Joe confides with Marmy in a great breaking way, telling her that she loves Lori, but she loves him like a brother, and that she could not love him in a romantic way. And 1900. she. Friend zone. <laughs> First time friend zone captured in the book. The 19th century. She's like, I love you as a friend. Yeah, I think, you know, because Meg is the kind of girl that is her complete opposite, that wants to get married, that wants to have kids, that wants to have children, and she wants to embody that ideal feminine woman that society had dictated in the 19th century joe wants to oppose that each and every way that she can mm -hmm. which is to say that you know the beauty that we have now is that the beauty of choice you know there are many women that can choose to stay home and be with their kids and raise their kids and that's amazing because that's their choice they don't have to do that Or they can work, they can be in the workforce, they can, you know, be in, you know, harsh labor if they want to, you know, there's a lot of women in construction, they can be in C-suites, in corporate, I mean, and everything in between, retail, sales, etc., marketing, anything in, under the sun, you know, whatever you want to be, you can, and you have that choice. And you also have the choice of not choosing that either, of just being a mother, which is in a really important job and you know mothering your children and raising them mm. i think that the beauty that we have now is we get to pick now we have a choice and yeah. that's amazing and you can put that into perspective um because i'm like very much into economics so today you aren't like during the pandemic you had a very high engagement of women in the workforce why because like so many jobs were offering remote positions right so What women were able to do is, on the one hand, still somehow take care of the children. I mean, it's not the same as taking care of children like full time, but you could stay home, work from home, and at the same time, take care of your children. And you had those like massive government stimulus that was pushed into the market. I don't know. Yeah, it was and like especially 15, if you had children too. I think it was, yeah, yeah. And it was 15 billion. I'm talking about like childcare. Yeah, yeah. And now with the corporations trying to push back to hybrid work or back to the office, like a lot of women like or men struggle who were previously able to take care of the kids at home, right? And the government stimulus is running out. So... There will be a big issue on how people and families are going to finance for childcare because childcare in the US is It's the so most expensive, expensive. childcare 
in the world. I don't know what the number is, but I think it's $12,000 or more. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I and, worked during yeah. COVID. Um, my mom, she was directing a school and she asked me to come and help, like me and my sister. And um, I was, you know, helping taking care of like babies with parents who were working in like the front lines, like they were, you know, nurses, doctors who had to, you know, be in person. You can't really be a remote nurse, a remote doctor when they're working in hospitals. So that's who we were taking care of. And there was, it was a very small amount and it was really hard one, you know, and I had help. And I think of like all, all those parents who would drop off and they have like four kids and they're all different ages. You have a toddler, you have an infant, you have a five-year-old and an eight-year-old. Imagine doing all of that by yourself at home. I think as being a one parent, that's really hard. And two parents, it's also really hard. I mean, they outnumber the parents. <laughs> Mutiny. You are outnumbered. Yeah, but I, I think that it it's really important to say, you know, like there are single moms out there. There are single dads out there. There are, you know, parents and houses that are that come in all shapes and sizes and different levels of difficulty. And I think that when parents are parenting, that is one of the hardest jobs because I have to say that like I got the easy job, you know, I see them for my shift and then I get to give them back. I'm like, goodbye, see you tomorrow. And my shift ends, but you know, like one of my best friends, um, she, I met her cause she was there working with me as well. She has two kids and she goes to the office, right? Which is taking care of kids for eight hours. And she has six seven kids and then she goes home and she has two kids so she always has a two kid minimum with her all the time so i think that it's crazy you know how much credit we don't give parents who are parenting their kids because it is a full-time job and it is unpaid labor and i think that covid and the pandemic did such a great job for corporations who for so many years did not want to give remote work until they had to. And then they realized how beneficial it was, not only for their financial aspect of the company where they don't have to rent out offices or rent out buildings or buy buildings and stuff like that, but also for the mental health and the productivity of their workers because their workers are not, you know, like worried about their kids or not, you know, their, their kid is in the other room and they can be present. And I have to say that a lot of the times when, you know, when I was a teacher and I say teacher very, very lightly, um, I would call both parents and I'd be like, Hey, like your kid is sick. And a majority of the time they'd be like, Oh, uh, can you please call my wife instead of me? <laughs> and then the wife would have to leave their job, come and pick up the kids if they were sick. And and I have to say that that's from experience where the majority of the time it was mom coming over, picking up the kids, mom leaving the work, coming, pick up the kids. And I just think that now that people have that choice and people have so much more liberty, I think there is a lot of work to be done, but I think that, you know, you're not alone in this anymore. Um, so back to the story. <laughs> Uh, Joe decides that she wants a bit of adventure and she wants to put distance between herself and Lori, hoping that he will forget his feelings if she's not there. So she spends six months with a friend of her mother um, who runs a boarding house in New York City and she serves as a governess for two children. Joe takes German classes with another boarder, Professor Friedrich Bayer. <laughs> He has come to America from Berlin to care for orphan sons of his sister. For extra money, Joe writes salacious romance stories anonymously for sensational newspapers. Suspecting her secret, uh, Friedrich mentions such writing is unprincipled and boring, really. 1900 Feet Finder edition. <laughs> no. 
Joe is persuaded to give up that type of writing as her time in New York comes to an end, unaware that he has fallen in love with her. When she returns to Massachusetts, Lori proposes marriage to Joe and she says, Yes. No, she says no. Lori travels to Europe with his grandfather to escape his heartbreak, and at home, Beth's health has seriously deteriorated. Deteriorated. Joe devotes her time to care for her dying sister, and Lori encounters Amy in Europe. He slowly falls in love with her as he begins to see her in a new light. She is unimpressed by the aimless, idle, and forlorn attitude he has adopted since being rejected by Joe and inspires him to find his purpose to do something worthwhile with his life. With the news of Beth's death, they meet for consolation and there their romance grows. Amy's aunt will not allow Amy to return unchaperoned with Lori and his grandfather, so they marry before returning home from Europe. So this guy gets friend zoned, gets rejected from marrying her and they still end up getting married no that joe he falls in love with joe and then he sees his other sister her other sister amy and he ends oh. up falling in love with amy oh. you're not listening okay it's confusing there are so many sisters there's four sisters meg is married has two babies joe is wild Amy is with the aunt in Europe and Beth is dying. And Beth dies. Friedrich, oh my God, Friedrich is in Massachusetts on business and visits the marches daily for two weeks. On his last day, he proposes to Joe and the two become engaged and she realizes that she loves him. Because the professor is poor, the wedding must wait while he establishes a good income by going out west to teach. A year goes by without much success, and later Aunt March dies and leaves her large estate, Plumfield, to Joe. She marries Friedrich and turns the house into a school. They leave, they have two sons of their own, and Amy and Lori have a daughter. At apple picking time, Marmy celebrates her 60th birthday at Plumfield with her husband and her three surviving daughters, their husbands, and her five grandchildren. And that is the end of Little Women. It's supposed to be a very pretty and beautiful book. It was one of the most popular books ever. And first of all, shout outs to the dad, Marmy's husband, that he survived pneumonia because... Pneumonia. Pneumonia. We have to cut it. He survived. He survived pneumonia, which was... A really severe illness back in the 19th century because this was before there was real medicine so it was the end of the era of dark medicine where you have basically no clue how to treat stuff and you just do random things and they're hope basically they work. like giving him so, leeches and be like i don't know my dude yeah. good luck yeah and the mortality rate for pneumonia was 24 percent of People that had it would die from it, which is a crazy amount. So during the Civil War, this was like the third most severe illness that you could get. Yeah, so that's so crazy. Shout out to the dad that he survived longer <laughs> shout out than to, his... No, no, no. Shout out to Marmy because she went to DC and made him get better. That's true. That's also like... And I think they've been staying in... Boston, right? So in Massachusetts, yeah. Yeah, so New Massachusetts England. and going all the way from Massachusetts to DC just to take care of your husband back in those days. I mean, that was a trip, right? So you had to take like I don't know, you would rather ride either a ride train, a, probably ride a horse or take the train if there was like train network already established. Of course there was. It's the railroad. Well, I'm quite sure there were people traveling with their horses. Yeah. Anyway, it's like a huge distance and a big trip, no matter what it would be. Yeah. And, you know, Louisa May Alcott got so m much success from this book that she wrote um, two sequels to this book, Little Men in 1871 
and Joe's Boys in 1886. And I think that this is a great way to go into the discussion portion of um, this book. I think that I think that no matter what we read, I want to I want to make this very clear. We are two people with different opinions and not all of our opinions are correct and we will never know all the information out there all of the ways to say things. I just want to say that, you know, this podcast is a way for us to talk about the opinions about reading these characters and who they are and just kind of put it into a different perspective. Um, we're not saying that our way is the only right way of thinking. We're not saying that these papers and these books are the only way that women should or should not be portrayed. I think there are many different ways, just like there are many different women out there that are all beautifully different from one another. Um, so just know that when you guys are listening to this podcast, we are just talking from the heart, giving our opinions um, based on what we read, based on what the information that we have and the experiences that we hold as well. I cannot agree more with that. <laughs> Because obviously there will always be opinions that, that differ and yeah. no one has to agree with everything. You cannot agree with it. Like you have to have your own position. Exactly. Your position will build up like from experience and whatever you learn. Right. Like, and the way, background. you know, like the way you thought when you were 13 versus 18, 20, et cetera, like it changes and you evolve. And that's the beauty of the human experience is that it changes. Um, So one of the quotes that I love from this paper is here is a heroine who is not perfect in fact Joe is incredibly flawed aren't we all of all the March sisters Meg and Joe are the most diametrically opposed because they sit as separate poles of femininity Alcott uses Meg as an example of strict femininity of the 19th century Through Meg's criticism of Joe's constant displays of masculinity, Alka aligns Meg as the correct and respectable version of young womanhood and forces Joe to inhabit the opposite. Nicole Marrow Schroeder expresses in her paper, Louisa May Alcott, little woman, um, that men were supposed to be active and aggressive, managing the harsh world of politics and the marketplace with while women ruled in quotes submissively and tenderly at home this strict separation between masculine and feminine spheres forces meg and joe to choose one realm over the other joe contrarily as the uncomfortable appearance of a girl who was rapidly shooting up into womanhood and did not like it joe embraces masculine manners that separate her from her sisters and utilizes these mannerisms to resist suffocating forms of femininity that she thinks are suffocating. And Meg synonymizes this rude behavior with being unladylike and further enforces that there is a certain way that girls should act and that Joe violates the sacred code. Meg recognizes that her adherence to feminine ideals of that time may provide her with a comfortable life should she attract a respectable and wealthy man. Joe defies the rules of femininity in girlhood because she fears that her childhood freedom will end with her eventually transitioning into womanhood. Unlike Meg, who wishes to marry a man who can provide her, provide for her, Joe wishes to be metaphorically that man. Right, and I think that comes a little bit down to achieving something as well, like as a woman. So you said Meg, like this is that it's very much into like district feminine picture. She's more like, okay, what can I do to be like a good woman like for that time episode, right? To marry a man that's potentially rich because that was like probably 90% or 95% of the cases the only way to better your lifestyle um, or like have more security for yourself, which I think like back in those days was even more important than it is now, right? You have some type of healthcare nowadays you have governments that support you but back then and social security um, they, it, it was very limited and on the other hand you have joe who's very much like trying to 
do the things herself and i'm sorry if you guys heard that sneeze it wasn't either of us it's our cat she has a cold <laughs> she really does she has a cold and she's sneezing she did but she's getting better though yeah so joe on the other hand is like very much like what typically like was only there to be grasped by men like some type of achievement trying to be achievement driven doing some things and she still ended up like marrying a man uh but yeah she she's like very different in the counter position to like her sister yeah and i think you know as i was saying there's a lot of people and i have a lot of friends who are girls who when i met them in college after college their sole you know dream and drive was to be this ideal of femininity especially because i went to a very conservative college they you know wanted to get married they wanted to have kids they wanted to be this um submissive rule in this submissive culture um with what we think is submissive but you know they think is something powerful they think you know running a family and having kids is some of the most um important things you can do in your life and i don't think that the opposite is i think they're just two very different kinds of womanhood you know like for example going the completely opposite way and saying like no man no family no nothing i mean that's also a choice and that's the thing but i think both groups see the extremity the extreme in each other and so they they pick at you know at one another you know you can say like the women who have kids and they want that to be their sole purpose and their sole drive in life they see women who are you know working and not necessarily putting family first and they say well you'll you won't be fulfilled in your life if you don't have a family you won't be fulfilled if you don't you know have a, a husband or you're not actually doing it the right way or a partner um and then women who are in the workforce and see women who have families who choose family over working they say um well you're not you know working for women equality and you're not working for you know rights for women like you're staying in the dark ages and i don't think that's true i think that the fact that we get the choice to pick of going to work or staying with our family or a little bit of both um that's true rights for women it is and it comes to every aspect of life right and i think it's always hard to there's always a lot of judging going on as you said like from both sides like one is saying like oh how can you like you're not empowering like womanhood the other ones are like how can you not empower like family and taking care of your child children um but at the end it just comes down to whatever your personal preference is and i think the, the only way that you would be from my point of view like allowed to judge would be if you would have done both if you would have experienced both worlds and then you can make um a statement for yourself and see like okay like i enjoyed this more or i enjoyed that more but i think even then even then it's individual to the experience because it is it will it, always stay individual it would only, you you can never judge somebody else's journey and somebody else's choice but that's like what i think that joe wanted to have is that choice and she felt that if she became a full on quote unquote woman that she would never be able to choose but she did in the end she was able to choose yeah. both oh yeah she did both she decided against marriage when someone proposed to her and she loved and them she still ended up having a relationship and then getting married to someone else and and having a, a career and being published yeah. um so well alka emphasizes that joe's desires um that joe desires the opposite of these traits she also underscores that the corresponding masculine traits active and ambitious are not inherently virtuous through beth's death alcott reveals that possessing only masculine traits detracts from the humility and selflessness encouraged within women 
Thus, Joe blends her masculine ambition with her feminine altruism to not only find individual success, but to aid her family. Beth performs the ideal womanhood, which solidified by her death remains otherworldly and unobtainable to Joe. Joe may admire Beth's virtues, but she also recognizes that this route is not tangible for Joe or other women who exhibit traits outside the allotted range of femininity. Initially, Marmy fulfills her role as a woman and marries well, but her potential for a life of comfort, a reward for adhering to gender roles, is revoked because of her reliance on a man. Alcott uses the March women's predicament to show how traditional marriage exposes women to the burdens of their husbands. Marmy is left to satisfy the roles of mother, father, and provider. Upon realizing Marmy's burden, Joe professes that she will bypass this version of womanhood and strive for financial independence, a status only permitted at the time to men. Through her use of Atlanta as a descriptor for Joe, Alcott defines the relationship between Joe and Lori. Joe is Atlanta, a goddess who would dismiss any suitor who failed to outrun her. Similarly, Joe refuses to marry because she believes that marrying a man would diminish her independence. Alcott insinuates that if Joe were to marry someone, they would have to be her equal. Um, an impossibility should any man force marriage upon her. Thus, Joe transfigures her childish masculine characteristics into adult ambition and autonomy, using her talent for writing to escape the confinement of womanhood and marriage and gain independence. Which I think, which I think is very interesting that, you know, the author touches on these subjects of you don't have to be masculine or you shouldn't have to be fully masculine to gain respect. I feel that the author recognized that women should be respected and be treated as equal for being women, not for being women who have, who have to force themselves to portray these masculine attributes. You know, women should be respected with femininity you know, and be equal through their femininity. But I think that a lot of, you know, earlier interpretations of feminism or early interpretations of what does it mean to be equal is that in order to be equal to a man, you have to act like a man, be the man. Um, but that shouldn't be the case. I should be respected not because I wear, you know, power suits, right? And dress like the masculine version of a woman, but because I wear skirts and floral and and both is fine. You know, you can wear your power suits, you can wear your jumpsuits, you can wear your um you know, your pants and stuff, but that shouldn't give you more respect than a woman who wears flowy skirts and ruffles and flowers and lace. I think that what should be respected is the work and the the attitude towards something. I absolutely agree to that. So yeah, it's not about what you wear or it's about like how you act and the integrity of it and think that's what's the foundation for respect like how you act how you treat people and that does not have anything to do with like you being a man or being a woman i agree i agree um through her masculinity joe explores the limits of both femininity and masculinity and examines what it means to be a little woman who longs to be a boy joe witnesses the limitations that her gender is subjected to early in life and works to eliminate these restrictions on herself. Joe refers to herself as the man of the family because until now, only men have fulfilled this role. While she does mourn her father's absence, Joe enjoys performing her masculine uninhibited, her masculinity uninhibited by the presence of an actual man. 
Maro Schroeder affirms that Joe lives happily in a world of women in which she can take over traditionally masculine roles. Living without their father exposes Joe to the potential independence she can gain in adulthood if she denies her feminine side. To achieve this independence, Joe acknowledges that she can make money through her writing, a privilege prohibited to many women at the time. Their community is made up of the rich Lawrences who financially aid the marches and of the poor Hummels of the poor Hummels who, to survive, must rely on the marches. While the Lawrences remind the marches of the wealth they lost due to their father's inability to care for them, the Hummels situation warns the girls of what is to come should they remain unwed. Which is kind of like the girls at this point are stuck between a rock and a hard place because they don't have that financial resource. You know, if they were richer or wealthier, they would have been able to be supported into going to school, into going to, you know, their careers. Um, But since they weren't, um, they could only really go so far. And they still were unwealthy enough that they had to go ahead and look for someone to marry someone who was wealthy someone who was going to elevate them and i think joe waits until she doesn't need someone to elevate she doesn't need someone to um bring her wealth but that she has her own wealth and she can do what she wants and she marries for love perfect Although Joe desires, Joe's desire to be the man of the house is formed in childhood, it is shaped by the very real fear of poverty. Out of necessity, the fear propels Joe to work to secure her own security and that of her families. Joe March represents girls and women who refuse to adhere to the restraining gender standards forced upon women and who vow to deliver themselves from tragic fates of submission or destitution. The patriarchal society Joe lives in restrains women by reducing their rights. Their fear of losing their financial security by not marrying keeps women in submissive and vulnerable positions. And stories like Joe's awaken in women their potential to become equal with men in intelligence and determination. Not only are women buried by the misogynistic depictions of their gender, but they also must deal with being considered lesser than to men. Women like Joe, who realize that their status in life is crafted by men, have twice as many obstacles to conquer. Women who feel as a tomboy feels, and desires as a tomboy desires, must take action frequently coded as masculine to fulfill those desires. Women who aspire to do more, or be more, are forced to relinquish their femininity, whether they want to or not, to fulfill their desires. Subjecting women to the gender binary and forcing them to choose masculinity or femininity reinforces the notion that women who occupy a spectrum of traits must conform and lose a part of themselves to succeed in society. Joe's story both highlights this unfortunate conformity into masculinity while creating a character who remains loyal to family, which is kind of what I was saying earlier. You know, back then, like, women were given, like, you can be feminine or you can adopt masculine traits and you cannot, it's not like you can add them to your femininity. You have to relinquish some of your femininity in order to make room for masculine traits. And I say masculine traits in quotes because I just think it's just, these are all human traits. Nothing is inherently feminine. Nothing is inherently masculine i think you can find both of these things in and different people you know there are men who are more sensitive than some women that i know and there are some women who are more you know ambitious and aggressive than some men that i know and that those those traits aren't necessarily masculine or feminine i just think that those are human traits yeah and i think they probably just got associated with one or the other gender just by time and by responsibilities and how they were split up, right? So they were like, oh, okay, like 
or you are organizational, you are like more dominant, you are more aggressive, you, you are a man because you are doing the business. So it's just like the traits and the how they were like allocated to the gender was just based on a certain time period and the history of that. And it's still mm -hmm. persisting. So I don't think this has ever been like real. It's just like, how do people express it? Right. Because they can also be women that are aggressive and they express it differently than men would do. So it doesn't yeah. mean like aggressive. You don't have to be like aggressive, aggressive. You can, like, and I think this is like one of the things that I hear the most is well, women are so emotional. And I just have to laugh because I'm like, Anger and aggression is also an emotion. And I see that displayed in men a lot. And nobody calls them emotional. Like, I worked in different areas of the working class. You know, I've worked in D.C. on the Hill. I've worked um, in retail. I've worked in, you know, a, a healthcare provider I worked in the service industry and I can tell you that men are just as emotional as women because emotions are human. And just because you express your emotion as anger and I express my emotion as sadness, um, it can be that we're both reacting to the same thing, right? Like if you put baking soda with Coke versus baking soda with water, um, it's still baking soda. You're just going to have like different reactions. And I think that that's what emotions are. Emotions are emotions. Men are emotional. Women are emotional. They're just emotional in different flavors. <laughs> yeah. Then they might channel it differently. And there are women who are, who when they get emotional, they get very angry. And men who get very emotional start crying. Like I've met the spectrum. I think in my life, I've gotten to see a little bit of everything. And I think that <laughs> when, when people say that, they're, they're like, oh, women are so emotional. I'm like, uh, have you met a man? Because they are also very emotional. I just think that you are thinking emotion synony synonymous with what you see women as emotional and you don't say oh a man is so emotional and then attribute that to like anger or aggression or silence you know and just coldness they're all emotions um so while many readers identify with joe's ambition and drive ultimately it is her kindness tenacity and self-sacrificial nature that makes joe march such an enduring literary figure. Joe's heroism is the normal sort. You know, this book is not a quest. It's not high fantasy. It's not, you know, anything that's like out there. Like it's ordinary day. It's like a middle, kind of like a lower middle class dream, you, which could like still persist like very similar in nowadays world, right? Yeah, and I think this stuck. this story is just normal day-to-day -day life of yes. these four sisters and their mom and dad and their neighbors and the town and it's like nothing special but when you read this they become your friends they become your sisters and it's very beautiful yeah it's like this romantic phase that's starting like in the 19th century after you had this very logical and theoretical area in the 17th century and it, that's somehow related to the industrial revolution again right? yeah because absolutely. people are like i want something that comforts me mm -hmm. kind of mm -hmm. um in this environment where you have this rapid technological changes yeah and it's not just rapid it's exponentially rapid you know like they're things are changing so quickly um, and I think that it, it changes the construction of society. It changes the construction of, you know, uh, classes, you know, social classes, you know, yeah. high class, lower class, middle class. You have, you know, and 
incredible influx of immigrants. You have, you know, people spreading to the West. It it just became a boom. And I think that it also became a boom for women. Um, and Joe, you know, she may dream of fighting duels in foreign lands, but ultimately her greatest battles are with the very ordinary evils of anger, selfishness, and fear. And I would argue it is this valiant battle in the realm of the mundane that makes Joe March everyone's favorite heroine. And that was so well put. Because sometimes you want a hero like the ones we see on in movies and TVs. With, they're very fictional. But our real heroes are everyday, everyday heroes. Those are the ones that really inspire us, that really push us, that say, you know, if they can do this, I can do this. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, Joe was her own hero. Yeah, it's just about bringing your own dream to life, right? So being your own hero in a certain way. So that's what she did. And it's not about being perfect. And it's about like doing whatever you want to do. And maybe the person itself, maybe the heroes themselves don't always feel like they are mm -hmm. heroes or anything. But in the aftermath, like some people will be like, oh, yeah, look, like what she did, like she did what she wanted to do. And now we end up having a podcast about her. Exactly. And um, I just want to say in closing, you know, Little Women is so special to me. Um, it has been a part of my life for so long. Uh, it's mentioned in Friends, which is one of my favorite shows, when Rachel and Joey are talking about Beth and they put the book in the freezer because she gets sick. It's a musical that, and part of that song, we played it in my senior recital in high school. And there are movies and shows about it on Amazon, Netflix, Prime, like at literally everything. And most recently, one of my best friends had her first child, a daughter, And she and her husband requested that we give books instead of cards for the baby shower. And I took this very seriously. And I gave her daughter three books, uh, kind of in a time capsule kind of way. So she gets to read a book at certain ages. So um, Green Eggs and Ham was my first book that I ever read or that I remember reading on my own. And she'll read that when she starts reading. And when she turns 11, she'll obviously read Harry Potter. And when she turns 15, my hope is that she reads Little Women. Um, because I hope that when she reads Little Women, in her, she can read it in her teen years when she's growing through all these questions of puberty of who am I? Who am I going to be as a woman? Who am I going to be, you know, going in into that cusp of childhood and adolescence into womanhood there's a lot of things that you question and granted you can always change your mind and always evolve but there i want her to know that there are so many ways to be a woman and there isn't a wrong or a right way whether you identify as one of the march women or you don't identify as any of them know that you're not alone by reading this book your friends and your family will be with you maybe not for a long time in some cases like with Beth but for the time that you do have them with them um, you have an amazing time and you exchange immense amounts of love with one another and know to enjoy and have quality time with everyone that you love because you never know you never know and I think that Joe really shows that with her relationship with her family, with her relationship with her friends, that she values that um, as well, as much as her independence and ambitions and aggression to become the man, you know? The man? The man. I have some closing words. I have some closing words. And it's just a fun fact, because I think we, we also want to bring something interesting and up to date like into the podcast that's not always just related to all of our heroes that we hear about and it's about the Suez 
kennel. You guys probably remember it from 2021 when the kennel was blocked. And this kennel was actually built from 1859 to 1869. So just think about that. Like that's been such a long period of time. And the Suez Canal is so important now for global trade that back in 2021, when a ship like was in the canal but blocked it off and mm -hmm. it had to be taken out the approximate loss for the economy for each day was nine billion dollars and that was built basically during the time when the book was written isn't mm -hmm. that cool yeah it is it is really cool i think that's really cool because you know you think of this as like long ago and something that you know we don't even work with today but it, it is those things that get built from a really long time ago and get invested in um those things we still see to this day we do and they still influence society like thoughts from that time projects from that time buildings from that time they persist and they still contribute to nowadays economy yeah and i just want to say you know as we go further and further and introduce more female characters um, on this podcast, I think it's really important to remember that, you know, like I said, there is no right way or wrong way to be a woman. I think that you have the choice to be the woman you want to be. You have the choice of telling the story you want to tell and, you know, living the story you want to live. And that's your choice. And you get to do that. And I think that as we see a lot of things develop in the world and all of the things that are going on politically, um, that we remind ourselves how lucky we are to still carry these choices in our society, to be able to, you know, have these choices, to be able to have these, um, these abilities that many women in the past haven't had or didn't have And also many women now today, um, those rights have been taken from them. So um, just thank you guys so much for taking care of one another um, and for joining in on the podcast and listening to us. We really appreciate it. We hope you had a good time and tune in next week to hear our next episode. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. And we'll see you on the next one. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.